0: and probably maybe even a little bit into the fall because of scheduling and everything. Uh, but I want us to start looking at what has been called the Apostles' Creed. Now, as I said earlier and, and said this morning, uh, Baptists have somewhat had a allergy or something to creeds. Uh, I don't know why, necessarily. Uh, Baptists grew out of a, a very individualistic kind of uh, and very... Uh, definite type of background that said, well, we just, we just have the Bible, and we just want to believe the Bible, and, and I, I, I love that. I, we do believe the Bible, and we want to keep believing the Bible, but that does not negate the need for creeds and confessions. Uh, Baptists have always been a confessional people, contrary to what some uh, modern-day historians and modern-day theologians might even go so far to say. Uh, Baptists have held confessions for almost as long as they've been in existence. Starting in London, with the London Baptist Confession, the first London Baptist and the second London Baptist in 1689, which was a little while ago, and then coming on over to this country and seeing the Philadelphia Confession of Faith and the the New Hampshire Confession of Faith, and then coming down to the uh, Charleston Confession of Faith, and then right on down into many, many of our churches and associations where confessions of faith were a normal part of everyday life. Some will argue that, well, but when the Southern Baptist Convention was founded in uh, 1859... Is that right? 1853. 45. Thank you. Well, didn't have that in my notes. In 1845, but I knew Scott would not let me down. When the Southern Baptist Convention was founded in 1845, the Southern Seminary was 1859... But when the convention was founded, there was no confession of faith adopted. And a lot of people will point to that and say, See, Southern Baptists do not believe in confessions of faith because when they founded the convention, they didn't come up with a doctrinal statement or a confession of faith. They just met and, and, and formed the convention. Well, there's a little truth in that. They did not form a an overall arching confession of faith for the whole convention. But the reason was, is because they were made up of churches and associations who had clear and definite doctrinal statements. Every church and every association in the mid-1800s had very clear doctrinal statements, doctrinal expressions, confessions of faith. And so they came together, formed the Southern Baptist Convention, and the convention said it's not our place to to formulate doctrinal statements because the associations and the churches are local and they have them. And that became very much a part of it for many, many years. As a matter of fact, it wasn't until 1881 when the first breach of that was seen. It wasn't on the national level, it was on the state level. It was in the state of Georgia. As they came to the end of the convention, and I don't know if you've ever been to a convention, a state convention, or a national convention, but there's one thing you can always count on. The first day, it's full. The second day, a few people leave. The third day, very few people are there. And it gets, it just becomes almost a ghost town. And in 1881, in Georgia, the, uh, the convention was being held, and there was great discussion, great debate, great preaching on the first couple of days. And on the third day, as is par for the course, because they had to get back to their farms and back to their crops and, and animals, uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the messengers left, and they went back to their homes at various places in Georgia. There was a group in the Georgia Baptist Convention known as the Union Baptists. The Union Baptists were a very uh, anti, if you will, uh, historical Baptist v- uh, group. They were very Arminian in their theology. And so on the last day of the convention, they all covenanted together that we're going to stay here, and what we're going to do is on the last day of the convention, we're going to pass a doctrinal statement. We're going to pass a confession of faith in 1881. And you know what they did? They did that. They are about the only ones there. It passed like, to 15%, uh, with 15% voting against it. And as Baptists are really well uh, known to do, they immediately got it printed, put in in the minutes, mailed out to all the churches, and all the churches said, Oh, well, this must be what we believe now. Well, the problem was it was out of order to do that in that without a quorum, without a, a large number. So the next year, the very first item of business that was carried out at the Georgia Baptist Convention in 1882 was that they stood up and they voted almost unanimously to throw out the doctrinal statement that had been uh, voted on the year before, saying that doctrinal statements are really, for the most part, best done by the churches and the associations on a local basis because that's where discipline and that's where care takes place, in the church and in the association of churches. So they threw it out. The only problem was the damage had already been done. Many of the church said, well, this is what we as Georgia Baptists believe, so we're going to take out our old, more solid confession of faith, and we're going to replace it with this, and that's what happened. And you can trace the decline of theological understanding, not only in Georgia, because because Georgia was one of the linchpins in the Southern Baptist Convention. It's where it was founded. But also, throughout the whole convention, a a declension in theological understanding, theological knowledge, and standing for theological truth among Baptists. And we started saying, we don't want creeds. We don't want confessions. We want nothing to do with that. And that has not been good, and that has not been healthy for our churches for the most part. The scriptures are filled with creeds. Uh, We may not read them and say, and if you're not looking real carefully, you may not say, oh, there's a creed. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 4, for instance, just for a moment. Let me give you a creed statement here. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4, 5, and 6, the Apostle Paul writes this, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That is a creedal statement. Paul is saying, this is what I believe. I believe that there is but one body and one spirit and one hope and one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is sovereign, who rules over all of creation, everything he's created. That is a creedal statement. I'll tell you why it is in just a minute. Or think about the Apostle Peter. Do you remember there in Caesarea Philippi when they were sitting around talking to the disciples and Jesus and Jesus said, Uh, Who do men say that I am? And uh, the disciples said, Well, some say you're John the Baptist, and some Elijah, and some one of the other prophets. And they were kind of batting that around a little bit. And he immediately turned to them and said, But who do you say that I am? And Peter very quickly and very boldly said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was a creedal statement for Peter to say that. He was expressing what he believed. Now, that was not the whole of the gospel. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's very central and very important, but it was not the totality. When, when Paul writes here, one body, one spirit, etc., that is not the totality of the message of the Scripture, but it's central to the message of the Scripture. And we need to understand that. Maybe this illustration would help you a little bit. If you are about to take a trip, there are several options you can have. And I realize today this is sort of an antiquated illustration because some of your cars have GPSs in them. If you're going to go somewhere, you punch in an address, and it talks you there. You know, It tells you, turn left at next light or whatever. And so you just follow this thing, and it takes you to wherever you're going. I don't like those things. I like maps. I, my, my wife likes maps, and she never gets in the car with me or without me to go on a trip whereby the, that she doesn't have an atlas in the back seat of the car ready to be looked at. Matter of fact, she drove to Alabama. We've only made that trip to Alabama how many times? Fifty since living in Kentucky. We take the same roads. We take the same route. We stop at the same places to get coffee on the way down. We don't vary it very much at all, but she's going to have her map. She likes to have a map handy. Now, the map we have that's an atlas is sort of a, a general kind of map. It's not very detailed in a lot of ways. It shows all the main roads and even some of the secondary roads. And if, if push came to shove and we had a problem, a, a major wreck or something on an interstate where we're traveling because we have interstates about the whole way, then we could take that atlas. And by using that, we could figure out by the roads that are there another route we could take. And it's a handy little tool. But if I were to strike out tomorrow to hike to Alabama, I'm not going to do it. It's a little further than I can do. But if, if one of us were to strike out to hike anywhere, we would not really want a map like an atlas. It tells you the roads, it tells you a few of the major uh, things that are needed. But what you would want is a real detailed topical map, uh, one that would show you all the marshes, all the rivers, all the streams. Places where you could get in trouble if you deviated from the trail that you were on very far. And you'd want that very detailed map. And and what a a, a map of a state in an atlas is about this big, that type of map may be that big and cover only a few miles. But it's telling you where you're going. It's helping you get where you want to go in a very detailed fashion. Well, I sort of liken the Bible and creeds and confessions to those maps. The Bible, with its million words in it, is sort of like the detailed map. You, you take little parts of it, and you figure out what you need to know, and it tells you in detail a lot of things. The creeds are more like the general map, the atlas. It's only a hundred words in the Apostles' Creed, for instance. It's, it's not a very big creed. And, and those hundred words, though, say a lot, but they don't say everything. They give you an outline. They give you a, a general theme Of what basic Christianity is all about. And so rather than having a detailed topical map, you have a highway map in a creed. And it can point you to ways and and things that you need to discern and understand better by fully looking at them in the Bible. Now, there are people who say, even in Baptist circles today, well, you know, we don't need creeds, we believe the Bible. You know, let's just let's don't sign a creed or let's don't sign a confession of faith. Let's just all sign the Bible. Well, that's well and good. But do you realize that just about every cult and every sect in America today would say, well, we'll sign the Bible. You've got the Mormons, they would gladly sign the Bible. You've got the Jehovah's Witnesses, they would gladly say, oh, we'll sign the Bible, yeah, we'll hold on to that. And, and any number of other groups who would say, oh, we believe the Bible. But what do they believe about the Bible? They even say, we believe in Jesus Christ. But who is this Jesus Christ? One of the main controversies that arose in the uh, the 400s within the church was a discussion about who Jesus was and and what Jesus was. And and the people who were having the controversy all said, we believe in Jesus. But there was one man, Arius, who developed what was now known as the Arian Controversy, who said, well, I believe in Jesus, but Jesus is not preexistent before the manger. Jesus came into existence on the night that he was born to the Virgin Mary in the stall in Bethlehem as a young baby. That's when Jesus began. Well, the, the church was in an uproar because the church had believed and rightly still believes today that Jesus is the pre-incarnation existent Son of God, that He has always existed. John said in John 1:1, for in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Jesus Christ, the very Word of God, has always been in existence. And yet, Arius said, no, we don't want to believe that. We want to believe that Jesus is a created being by birth, just like everybody else is. And that's when he uh, came into existence. Well, they held a council about that. They discussed it. And and out of that came uh, a a council that declared that, no, Jesus was the pre-existent, pre-incarnational existent second person of the Godhead, second person in the Trinity. So creeds have, been, have given us an understanding and a hope of how we understand the Bible, if you will. The Apostles' Creed is no different. I want to I give you just a little bit of reasoning why we would use creeds as this general map and yet have to use it alongside of the Bible. Uh, creeds have been used throughout the life of the church to teach truth, but also to fight heresy. They've been used to teach what truth is, but also to fight heresy. Now, I realize that in the 21st century, it's almost a heresy to talk about anything being a heresy. You know, we just don't believe in heresies. We believe that everybody has their own route. Everybody can believe their own thing. And as long as you believe something, then everybody's all right. And there's no such thing as heretical teachings. I, I was listening to the radio this week, and I heard, I heard some things on there that made my hair stand up, literally, and it was on a Christian radio station that was talking about you know, how we believe and how we come to faith and how we worship. And, and one person uh, commented, called in and commented that we need to worship not like we're at a football game, but worship like we're at church. You know, we don't cheer and rant and rave and, and give Jesus a J and an S. You know, you don't do that. That we ought to come with a, with a solemnity and a celebration together, but we ought to come before God and worship God as He has prescribed in His Word. Well, somebody just jumped all over that person and said, how dare them judge how another person's, person worships. We ought to worship God any way we want to. And to which I was screaming at the radio, ask Nadab and, and Abihu about that. Ask them what it's like to worship God any way you want to. They went in and worshiped God. And, and what happened? Well, the, the, uh, the, they offered strange incense, strange fire before the Lord, and the fire came out of the altar and consumed them because they were worshiping not as God had prescribed, they were worshiping in their own way. I believe we've got some latitude we've got some freedom within worship and we ought to utilize that for the glory of God. But I believe we also have to look at the Scripture and say, how does God want us worshiping? What are the elements of worship? It's not about us. It's about Him. And so we have to concentrate on that. So there are heresies today, but to to be able to understand the importance of creeds, you have to at least acknowledge that there is such a thing as heresy. There is such a thing as untruth, non-truth in our world today. I love what Jude said in his little letter. Uh, you don't have to turn there, and you can just jot it down and read it later, but in Jude, verse 3, there's only one chapter in Jude. Jude said this. He said, Brethren, or beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, see, so I want to write to you about what salvation is, and the common salvation we share in Christ. While I wanted to do that, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. He said, I want you to contend for the faith. I want you to understand the faith. I want you to fight for the faith. It It is a faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. It's not varying. It's not changing. It's not evolving. It is a faith that has been handed down from the apostles. you and me. That's why the church in Acts, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that we've looked at so many times, it said they were continuously devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine. And that's what we continually devote ourselves to week after week as we come together and study the New Testament. We must fight. We must contend for the faith that's been handed down. I see about seven. I just want to give these to you quickly, but seven importance. Are important statements of why we need creeds and confessions, and uh, I'll, I'll give you these rather quickly, and we can get them to you later if you want to. If you can't get them down, number one, they help define the truth. They help define the truth. They take the the totality of Scripture and they put it in a in a bite-sized bit, if you will, something that you can digest, something you can think about. They define who Jesus is. It's not just that. You know, Jesus is just some nebulous Savior that just is kind of meek and mild, and, and you don't have to really know what He's all about. The, the creeds help us understand who Jesus is, who God is, what the church is. We'll talk about that as we read the creed in just a moment. Secondly, they, they help correct error. They, they set boundaries that we live within. Uh, and, and you just don't go over those boundaries. The creeds and confessions help us to have a boundary that we live within. And we say these, and we understand these, and they're easy to delineate. Uh, and, and, and we say, this is what helps us to correct error within the church. Thirdly, they operate as standards for God's people. They're basically just a summary of what we believe. They don't replace Scripture. They never replace Scripture. And nobody that I know of that that enjoys the creeds, and I do enjoy the creeds, and I enjoy reading them and studying them and, and reciting them even in my private devotional time, in my private prayer time. Nobody I know that loves the creeds say, okay, that's all we need. We need the scripture, but we need creeds to help us understand God's standards for His people. Fourthly, they assist us in worship. Do you know every Sunday we tend to have creeds in our service every single Sunday? did you do, do you recognize that? And the music. Most of the time, we Baptists at least, we sing our creeds. I mean, uh, this morning, for instance, we were singing, you know, that uh, what a mighty God we serve and how great is our God and there's power in the blood of Christ and we, we stand amazed in his presence. I mean, all of those things are, are creeds. We sing, one of my favorites, in Christ alone. And we're saying in that, here's what we believe. We believe that Jesus Christ alone is the source of salvation. Faith in Christ, Just not going to stay up there when we start using it, is it? Give me, okay, I'll get to it in just a minute. Just, uh, you know, that, that in Christ alone, Is where we stand. So we sing our creeds for the most part. I believe hymns and songs and spiritual songs that we sing, choruses, whatever they might be, should be confessions of faith set to music. And if they don't confess what we believe, we ought not sing them. That's why we have to be careful about the songs we choose is because if we're not careful, we'll be singing something that we don't really believe, and consequently, our people will be reciting that, and let me tell you, music sticks in your brain better than anything else, and you will find ourselves confessing something that we don't want to confess. Music helps us remember things that just sermons don't, or just reading doesn't. And so we have to be careful how we go about what we sing. I told the group on Wednesday night a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the difference between the traditional church and the and the biblical model of church, and we were kind of defining that and looking at that. And I said, you know, I wish that I'd spent as much time memorizing scripture as I did memorizing rock and roll songs in the '60s. I mean, I can, and we did this a little bit on the uh, on the mission trip in in April. Me and Mary Lou, we were the only ones that knew the '60s songs, but we. Uh, I had my iPod and we, I put on some 60s music and we would, we would play Name That Tune or Name That Group and then we'd sing with it. And I can just about go to any genre during the 1960s because I was in high school then and I can sing it. And it comes on and I immediately pick it up. Now, Scripture is a little more difficult because I didn't spend as much time learning the Scripture, memorizing the Scripture as I did memorizing those songs. But songs help us with our creedal statements, our confessional statements. They, they fifthly, fifthly they, they help us connect to our history. They help us to understand that we don't believe something new. We believe what has been believed for generations, indeed for centuries. We, we are, we're connected to the, fa- uh, the, the, the fathers of our faith. Sometimes back 2,000 years when we state something like the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Apostles' Creed was not written by the apostles, contrary to, to some myth and that grew up around it. But the Apostles' Creed does express the doctrine of the apostles, what they taught. And when we say that, when we read that, when we confess that, we, we are saying we are connecting ourselves not with what took place at the Southern Baptist Convention a year or two ago, but we're connecting ourselves with the early church, with the apostles, and with their teaching, and that's really what matters. Fads come and go. Truth remains forever. Six, they teach. Uh, You can take the Apostles' Creed, you can hand it to a child, and they can read it, and if they'll read it a few times and absorb some of it, they will be taught some of the most basic doctrinal truth. They teach, they clarify truth. And then finally, they define Christian unity. They define Christian unity. We live in a day where unity amounts to hey, let's just all get along. We have the Rodney King theory of unity. Can't we just all get along? You know, can't we just love one another? Does it really matter that we believe the same thing? Does it really matter that that we we hold some kind of standards of belief? Why don't we just all come together and say, we're just going to get along and like one another uh, and not worry about doctrine? Well, the Scripture indicates that doctrine and the truth of the Scripture is is where our unity is to come. Uh, As one old saying said, you know, in in essentials we, we hold tenaciously in those. In, in some of the areas that are more uh, non-essential, in non-essentials we show charity, we show love to one another. But in, in the matters of absolute truth, we never bend. We, we never give way. We can't, we can't give up who Christ is and stay unified with anybody who declares that He's something else. We can't, we can't hold unity with somebody who says that we're saved by our good works. When the Scripture clearly says that we are saved by the grace of Christ, the grace of God and Christ's work on the cross. Somebody says, no, we're saved because we're good. We can't stand in unity with them because that's not an acceptable truth. That's not teaching scripture. Jesus, when he prayed for you and me and for those disciples in John chapter 17, he, one, of his, one of the points of his prayer and that whole prayer is about unity. Bring them together. Make them one, Fathers, you and I are one. Show them how to love one another. And he said... Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So our unity has to be around the truth of God. And creeds and confessions help us define that unity. Same with the the passage I read to start with out of Ephesians 4. We understand that there is one body. and, And folks, that's not the baddest body. You know, there are believers and there's a body of believers... The redeemed in all sorts of different churches, in all different kinds of churches, those who have put their faith in Christ and trust in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, and and they are our brothers and our sisters. I don't care what their tag is, I don't care what title they choose to follow under. We don't have all the answers, and we're not all there is. And neither are some other groups who think they are. There's one body, there's one spirit. One Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Godhead, who affects regeneration by his work in a person's life, gives new life, gives new birth. You're called with one hope, in one hope of your calling. Our call is into Christ, and our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. There's one Lord, Jesus Christ. There's one faith, and that is not a, a church, it's the faith in Christ alone. There's one baptism. That's not baptism by water. Not even talking about water baptism there. Water baptism is merely a symbol of the one baptism. This baptism is baptism by the Spirit of God into the body of Christ. And uh, it happens at salvation. It happens at conversion. One God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. And so we, we see that those kind of things define our unity. Who we can and who we cannot have worship fellowship with. And there's some people in some groups that I will be co belligerent with in, in issues such as abortion or what marriage is all about who I would never enter into a worship relationship with. Does that make sense? You know, there's some I would work for righteousness, public righteousness with, whom I would not invite their pastor or their whatever to come into our church and preach because the doctrine is so different and the creedal understanding is so different. So there's the reasons. There's seven reasons that I see why these creeds are important. Now, I haven't even gotten to the sermon yet. That's all introduction. (laughs) Sorry. And I won't do the whole sermon. But I do want want you to see the creed. Uh, Hit that next. And next time in two weeks, we'll have you a copy of this that we can look at. Because we're going to break it down line by line as we go through the next few weeks. This is what the creed says, and it says I. But I want you to realize it's not an individualistic I. It's the group body speaking, I believe. And it's really we believe. We confess this. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. We'll have fun with that one. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. I think I changed the sits up there. He sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, and the quick being those who are alive. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church. Notice the little c there. That's important. The Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, that's a hundred words. But in that hundred words, there is an outline of basic Christian truth. An outline of basic Christian doctrine. Now, I'm just curious. This is a little survey here as we come to a close tonight. And we'll get to, I believe, next week. Uh or two weeks from now, how many of you grew up in a church where the Apostles' Creed was quoted quite regularly yeah there's there's quite a number here where that's the case uh and, and i and I think that's good i mean actually how many of you been in a not maybe up, how many of you have been in a church where it was quoted sometimes now every one of you should have raised it because we've actually used it twice in three and a half years here at grace, all right. We've used it as a responsive reading on Sunday morning on, I think, two occasions, maybe three, but I believe it's only two. So every one of you have seen it done in worship before, uh, even here. But the point I want to make is we ought not be afraid of creeds and confessions. Uh, we, we now have, as Southern Baptist a confession of faith, the Baptist faith and message. And uh, we'll tie that in a little bit with this as we move through it and show you where they, they are in agreement with one another very clearly. We also understand that that as a church, if if you go and look at my resume, uh, I don't send those out anymore, but I used to. And uh, when I would send, but even when I sent out, like to go and do a, this men's conference I'm doing in April, they, in August they called and asked for a resume, and I sent them the resume. And one of the main statements in my resume is about a ten-point doctrinal statement. Now, I will tell them that my full doctrinal statement as a Southern Baptist is the Baptist faith and message. But here's what I see as sort of a synopsis of what I believe. And it's only ten points. But it covers what I think are the important things about what I believe, what I believe about the Scripture, what I believe about God, what I believe about Jesus Christ, what I believe about salvation, and on and on and on. So we'll talk about this line by line. Now, two weeks from tonight, we will talk about I believe just those words. And those words mean, basically they, they are, they're part of the earliest beginning of creeds and confessions. When the disciples were beginning to preach the gospel after Christ's death and resurrection, all throughout the Roman Empire, there was a creed that the people were required if they stayed in good grace with the government to recite. Just three words. And, and that word was Kaiser Ho Christo. Kaiser ho Christos. And basically, no, Kaiser ho kurios. Get my Greek wrong here. And basically it was Caesar is Lord. Kaiser ho kurios. Caesar is Lord. And the disciples of Christ refused to do that. They said, no, Christos ho kurios. Christ is Lord. And it caused a lot of them a lot of problems. Matter of fact, some of them lost their head over it. Some of them were crucified over it, some of them were burned at the stake because of it. But they said, we cannot confess that Caesar, we cannot confess that Caesar is Lord when we know that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And to confess Caesar is to deny the truth. And so perhaps the earliest Christian creed was Christ is Lord. Christus Ho who Curios. That Christ is Lord. And we believe that. We still say that. And we say that by the Holy Spirit. We say that by the the presence of God's Spirit within our life. And we walk in that truth and we declare that truth and we believe that truth. So in two weeks, we will talk about I believe and just talk about what that means, that I believe. And then we'll break this down in the weeks to come. All right? You got the introduction. Two weeks from tonight. You'll get the sermon, Lord willing, all right? Um, Let me, as we get ready to go tonight, let me uh, encourage you that if you can to stay and help Brother Scott to go to the areas where our uh, Backyard Bible Clubs, our VBS is going to be held. Uh, I mean, it really is important to, if we don't get these invitations out at Hope Way and Colonial Village particularly, and then also another neighborhood if we don't get those invitations out we might as well not go so he needs your help if you possibly can please stay he'll meet over here just as soon as we're finished in the choir area when we're through tonight so if you can come in and help him and we'll distribute those more that distribute and prayer walk the less time we will take is that correct all right all right let's pray together And also before we pray, remember Wednesday night we will meet down at the Holtzclaw building for a homemade ice cream fellowship. And it only happens if you bring your homemade ice cream, all right? It doesn't just appear. You have to bring it. So it will be a great time of fellowship down at the Holtzclaw with our summer fellowships on Wednesday night. So come and bring it and eat it, and we'll have some good ice cream, I'm sure. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful tonight to be able to just begin a study that will take us through basic Christianity. It will take us through a basic understanding of of just the practical truths that Your Word teach us about who we are in Christ. Help us, Lord, to be obedient. Help us, Lord, to study. Help us, Lord, to desire to be all that You've called us to be. For We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.